Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned during the announcements, we've scheduled a baptism for Sunday afternoon, September 25th, and so this morning... Uh, I want to take this morning to speak to you from the scriptures on the subject of baptism. I mean, it's been a a few years, I think three or four years, since I addressed the issue. And in speaking with the elders, we thought it would be helpful to once again teach on the subject because there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding in the church today when it comes to the issue of baptism. And one reason for this is most churches, like ours, are made up of people from different churches and denominational backgrounds, and you never know what someone has been taught on the subject or if they've been taught at all. And concerning baptism, Christians seem to fall into one of two errors, either placing very little importance on it or the opposite error of placing too much importance on it. And in so doing, as one man said, we lose the beauty and richness of this ordinance that Jesus himself instituted and the Christian church has practiced for nearly 2,000 years. And so it's very important that we all have a clear biblical understanding of what baptism is and and why it matters. And so hopefully and, and prayerfully, the message this morning will do at least a couple of things. Number one, help establish in our minds what we as a church believe and teach on this important subject of water baptism. I mean, this teaching will be helpful to those who have been baptized. It may help you understand what your baptism was all about and perhaps bring some clarity to your mind on the issue. There may also be some here who have been baptized, but by the end of the message, you may realize you need to be baptized again, and you'll understand what I mean as we go along. It'll be helpful to those who uh, have become Christians but have not been baptized. You'll learn what Jesus commands believers to do concerning baptism. It'll be helpful to those of you who know new believers who have never been baptized. And for Christians here today, it'll help equip you to minister to new converts about baptism and its importance. And then secondly, I hope it'll be an encouraging reminder for us all. Because when we talk about baptism, we're not merely speaking about a religious ritual or or church tradition, though it's become that in, in so many churches. But rather, what we are speaking about is Jesus Christ and his glorious work of salvation and dying for our sins and rising for our justification and how our Lord taught us to express our faith in him and his great salvation publicly. And so hopefully we're all going to be encouraged this morning by being reminded of the truth about water baptism. At least that is my prayer for all of us this morning. Now in modern evangelicalism, people often speak of making a public profession of faith. And that phrase has come to be associated with things such as responding to altar calls, or praying certain prayers, or signing response cards. But the Bible supports none of those practices. However, the apostles and the early church did have a way for repentant sinners to make a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism. So that raises the question, what is baptism? Well, let's first of all define the physical act of baptism, and we'll get to its spiritual or theological meaning in just a moment. We can understand what the physical act of baptism is by simply understanding what the words mean. Words have meaning, don't they? And so we'll be able to understand what the physical act of baptism is by simply understanding what the words mean as they're used in Scripture. In the New Testament, 
The basic meaning of the word baptism comes from two Greek words. The first one is bapto, and it means to plunge or to dip into, or to dip into and then out of. It's used that way in Luke chapter 16, verse 24. And he, speaking of the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip or to bapto his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So that's the first word, bapto, to, to dip into and then out of. The second word is baptizo, from which we get our word baptize. And the word literally means to submerge, to sink, to immerse in a sustained way. In fact, it was used in classical Greek for sunken ships. And this word is used many times in the New Testament, and it always means to immerse completely. And it's actually the word for drown, to drown, you know, totally submerging into water. One commentator wrote, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a, is a text from a Greek poet and physician, Nicander, who lived about 200 BC. It's a recipe for making pickles and is helpful because it uses both words, bapto and baptizo. Nicander said, to make a pickle, the vegetables should be first dipped, or bapto, into boiling water, and then baptizo, or baptized, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersion of vegetables into a solution. And so the terms which are used in the New Testament, bapto and baptizo, always refer to immersion or being submerged in water. Every New Testament use of these words either requires, demands, or permits a translation of immerse or immersion. These two words are never used in the passive sense. And what I mean by that is this. Water is never said to be baptized on someone, such as sprinkling or pouring water upon the head. The Greeks actually had a different word for sprinkling. And that word is used of sprinkling or splattering with water. It's a different word altogether. And so from a linguistic viewpoint, baptism always means immersing, to completely immerse or submerse something into water. And the use of these words in the New Testament supports this very obvious meaning. For example, the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, we read the people were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. They were immersed by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I mean, obviously, they were in the river being immersed. You don't need a river to sprinkle or pour. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized by John, we read, and when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water. So Jesus went up. He came up from the water. He was in the river and then came up out of it. In John chapter 3, verse 23, we read, John also was baptizing at Inan near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, why would they need plentiful water? Well, because there were multitudes of people there to be immersed in water. Another example would be Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. After Philip baptized him, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the Ethiopian eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The examples of baptism recorded in Scripture imply immersion, and only immersion fits the language and the examples of the New Testament. One commentator said, if you go through the entire New Testament and wherever you find the word baptize, translate it immerse, you will have the meaning properly understood. And that's the way the word should have been translated, but instead they transliterated it. But it means immerse. And so when we talk about the physical act of, of baptism, we are talking about an act or ceremony in which a Christian is immersed or submerged in water. Now you may be thinking, well, if baptism means being immersed in water, what about churches who, when they baptize, sprinkle instead of immerse? Well, that's a good question. I'm so glad you asked it. 
The clear teaching of the New Testament is that baptism is by immersion. I mean, the very meaning of the word baptize means to immerse something completely. And so it is evident that immersing someone in water and lifting them from it should be the preferred method of baptism because it gives us the most vivid picture of salvation. And I say that because only immersion pictures the, the, the spiritual reality which baptism symbolizes. Also, an early 2nd century writing known as the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles or the Didache gave instructions on how to baptize. From this, we learn how baptism was practiced by the early church. And this is what it says. Now concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all of these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water or in, in moving water. But if you have no living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither, in other words, if no water is available in which to immerse someone, then it said, pour out water three times upon the head in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You see, to the early church, the early Christians, baptism was so important that when there was no water for someone to be immersed, pouring was allowed in its place. This didn't mean the church was to start pouring or sprinkling instead of immersing, not at all. But simply the baptism was so important that instead of not being baptized because of a lack of water, they would rather pour water than do nothing at all. And no doubt this is where the practice of sprinkling originated. However, the Bible clearly teaches baptism by immersion. But pouring or sprinkling was allowed in the early church in cases where there was no water in which to immerse. So baptism should be by full immersion unless you're ministering in, uh, in a circumstance where that's just not possible. You know, such as a, a dry, waterless mission field or uh, due to physical inability, as in the case of the repentant thief on the cross or in the case of a, someone with a severe physical disability, or when someone is confined to a hospital bed, or similar circumstances beyond the believer's control. And in those instances, God, I know, looks at the heart and would certainly accept water poured over the head of a child of God as baptism in those circumstances. And I'm certainly not going to break fellowship with other true believers if they sprinkle instead of immerse, because baptism is not essential for salvation. That certainly doesn't mean that we should take baptism lightly because nothing the Lord Jesus commands is unimportant and should ever be taken lightly. But among believers, there may, there may be disagreements about details or on certain issues like baptism. But our disagreements do not destroy the spiritual unity that we have in Christ because all true believers are one in and through our relationship with Jesus Christ and him alone. And so the physical act of water baptism, when we talk about baptism, the physical act of water baptism is being immersed in water. Well, what is the theological meaning of Christian baptism? Well, a number of things. First of all, baptism pictures the believer's spiritual union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Spiritually speaking, at conversion, we were united with Christ. You know, we were immersed into Christ. We were joined with him by the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 6. In fact, why don't you turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And the point here is that at conversion, we were united with Christ, we were immersed into him, joined with him by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul says, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, though the word baptism is in this passage, it is not speaking of water baptism. It's talking about immersion, but not immersion into water. Paul is using the word baptize in this passage in a metaphorical sense to speak of what happened to us spiritually when we received Christ. At conversion, we were spiritually immersed into the person of Christ. That is the baptism of the Spirit. We were baptized into Christ at conversion. In other words, we were united with him and identified with him. We became one with him. And this is dramatically depicted by water baptism. Just as Christ died and was buried, when a believer is immersed in water baptism, it is symbolic of the fact that in Christ, his old self of unbelief, rebellion, and idolatry died with Christ. You know, the old man died and was buried with Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, When the believer is raised up out of the water in baptism, it is symbolic of the fact that in Christ, he is raised by the glorious power of God from spiritual death to walk in newness of life. In other words, he's a new creation in Christ, and he has begun to live a new life. And so in baptism, the believer's union with Christ is publicly demonstrated by immersing them in water and raising them out of it, which pictures what happened to us when we became Christians. Quite simply, we could say it is that baptism is an outward expression of an inward spiritual reality. And so this is another reason immersion is the appropriate mode of baptism. Not only do the Greek words mean immersion. But immersion is also the only mode that symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. Secondly, in baptism, the believer is publicly committing him or herself to Christ. In other words, they are declaring before the church and the world, they're declaring publicly that they belong to Christ. In baptism, you could say, is how you go on record as a Christian. And that's why it's done in public before witnesses. I mean, think about those who repented and were baptized on the day of Pentecost. I mean, all of those who stepped forward from the crowd were declaring themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. And in that day, it was extremely costly to do so. I mean, baptism is how you publicly profess your faith in and your submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see an example of this submission when Israel was said to have been baptized into Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read those for you. Beginning in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. You see, the children of Israel, if they had wanted to, could have stayed in Egypt, but they didn't. Instead, they listened to Moses and followed him, risking their lives with him by stepping into the Red Sea. And in doing so, they submitted themselves entirely to Moses' leadership. You could say they surrendered themselves to him. He was their leader, their their master, so to speak. And so in a figurative sense, They were baptized into Moses. They were submitting themselves to him. And the point is simply that in being baptized, the believer is publicly professing his faith in and his submission to Christ as Lord and Savior. You could say that baptism is an oath of allegiance to King Jesus. It's how you publicly swear faithfulness to him. In that sense, baptism is a promise to obey what Christ commands. To be baptized is to sign on the dotted line, so to speak. It's where faith goes public, owning the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and submitting to him as Lord in plain view of all. And that's what what you profess to the world when you're baptized. Thirdly, in baptism, a believer not only commits him or herself to Christ, but also to Christ's people. 
I mean, baptism is not only a public proclamation of our faith in, in Christ, it also identifies us with the church, the body of Christ. I mean, remember again what happened on the day of Pentecost. So those who received his word, in other words, those who believed, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, to whom or what were these 3,000 added? To the local church. To the church in Jerusalem, which previously numbered only 120. Those who were baptized at Pentecost stepped out of the world and into the church. And so it is, or so it, it should be with everyone who is baptized today. Because to trust in Jesus Christ is to join all of those who trust in Jesus. To receive Jesus is to also to receive his people. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to each other. I mean, to call on God as Father is, is to embrace everyone else who does the same as brothers and sisters. To be united to Christ is to become a member of his universal body, but also a local body of believers. So in baptism, a believer publicly commits him or herself to both the Lord Jesus Christ and to the local church. As one man said, in baptism you are putting on the team jersey and committing to play on the team. And by the way, the New Testament, uh, the scriptures, know absolutely nothing of a churchless believer. A believer who is not in and committed to a local church. I mean, there, there's no in-between zone where, you know, it, it's just you and Jesus. You know, you're out there with Jesus, but not in the church with his people. No, Bible knows nothing of that. To be joined to Jesus Christ is to be joined to his people in a local church. Baptism, then, is a public proclamation of your commitment to follow Christ in a local body of believers. So in baptism, a Christian commits to loving, serving, and submitting to Christ's people in the local church. Number four, when a believer is obedient to the command of Jesus to be baptized, he demonstrates the genuineness of his love for Christ. I mean, what did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Listen, we can do nothing to earn or merit our relationship with God. Our obedience merits us nothing. But our obedience is an essential affirmation of our love for Christ. It is by Jesus' obedience that we are saved. And it is by our obedience, compelled by our love for him, that we express our gratitude for so great a salvation. Spurgeon said, we think it a sweet sign of a humble and broken heart when a child of God is willing to obey a command which is not essential to his salvation. It is no small sign of grace when the young convert yields himself to be baptized. And so if you profess to be a believer, you will, you'll be baptized out of obedience compelled by love for Christ. And so baptism in the, phys the, the physical act is the immersing of a believer in water. Theologically, baptism is significant because in baptism, the believer's spiritual union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection is publicly portrayed. In baptism, the believer is publicly professing his faith and his submission to Jesus Christ. In baptism, a believer publicly commits himself not only to the Lord Jesus, but also to the local church. And the believer's obedience to the command to be baptized demonstrates his love for Christ. But one more thing needs to be said about baptism. Baptism is something someone does to someone else. Right? I mean, you don't baptize yourself. There are two parties involved, and both parties say something to each other and the world. Baptism also involves the church. The believer is baptized, but the church, specifically its pastors and elders, baptize the believer in the presence of the church. And that's why it's so important for the people of the church to be present at baptisms. It should be something that the entire church rejoices in. They're there to support this person being baptized, to encourage them in their faith, to welcome them into the family of God, into the local body of believers. 
So baptism is very important. And it's important for the people of the church to be present at baptism. So the believers baptize, but the church, its pastors and elders, baptize the believer in the presence of the church. You see, it's not only the person being baptized who's making a public proclamation. The baptizer, you know, the church, the pastors and the elders, they're also making a public proclamation. In baptism, the church goes on record on earth for the kingdom of heaven. In baptism, a church is affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ. It is affirming that someone who claims to be united to Christ in his death and resurrection truly is as far as they can discern. And so baptism is the church's act of affirming and and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing them in water. And that's why at baptisms, uh, you know, when the crowd shows up, somebody out of the crowd can't just step out and say, well, I want to be baptized too. Especially if we don't know the person and don't fellowship with them because we cannot as a church, as the leadership of the church, affirm that this person is in fact a believer in Jesus Christ. So it's the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing them in water. And it's a believer's act of publicly identifying and committing him or herself to Jesus Christ and to the local church. Well, what are the requirements for baptism? Well, first of all, baptism is only for believers, right? That only makes sense. Baptism is only for believers, And so the requirement is that a person must be born again. They must have turned to God, confessing their sin, putting their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation and eternal life. They need an understanding of what that means biblically. And they need to have a mature profession of faith. And there must be reasonable evidence in their life of truly being saved. A lot of people today claim to be saved. In fact, 70% of the population of the United States claim to be saved. We know that's not true, right? So you have to be a believer, must have trusted in Christ alone for salvation and eternal life and have a, a basic biblical understanding of what that means and have a mature profession of faith. And there has to be evidence of that in your life. And many times people will ask, well, should I be rebaptized if I was baptized previously? And they ask this for several reasons. You know, perhaps they were baptized as an infant or a child. Obviously, as an infant, they weren't saved and didn't understand it. And if they were very, a very young child, uh, they certainly didn't understand it. Or perhaps someone wasn't baptized by immersion. Or when they were baptized as a young person or an adult, they now know that they weren't saved at that point. Well, if that's your situation, you should be baptized again. Because whatever you did before has no spiritual meaning or significance. If you realize now that when you were baptized as a younger person or you know, many years ago, and you weren't even a believer then, Well, the only thing that happened that day is you were a a sinner, dry, went down, came up a wet sinner. Didn't mean anything. So the requirement for water baptism is that you're a born-again believer, trusting Christ alone for salvation. You have a mature profession of faith, and I should explain what I mean by that. A mature profession of faith is made by a responsible adult or young adult, someone who has assumed uh, you know, care for themselves, someone who uh, is a little older. And their life gives reasonable evidence of that reality. Not just, well, I prayed a prayer uh, X amount of years ago. My life certainly doesn't display uh, at all, give any evidence that I'm truly born again, but I, I prayed the prayer. Well, a lot of people pray prayers and it doesn't mean anything. Uh, There will be fruit in someone's life. There will be fruit, evidence in the life of a believer. So uh, you have to be a born-again believer and give evidence of that reality in your life. So thus far, we've explained the physical act of baptism, its theological significance, and the requirements for baptism. 
And though almost all so-called Christian groups teach that baptism is a significant part of Christian life, uh, there is widespread confusion and disagreement as to what baptism means, what it does and does not accomplish, particularly in relationship to the process of salvation. So there's a lot of confusion out there with regard to baptism. You say, well, why? Why is there so much confusion? Well, primarily because Satan wants to make baptism confusing. Because he doesn't want you to be baptized, because he doesn't want you to be obedient to God's word. He wants to shatter the pattern of obedience in the life of a believer, and he wants to do so at the very beginning of their Christian life. Because if he can make baptism so confusing that you ignore it or or don't do it, he has started you on the path of indifference and disobedience. And so Satan causes confusion when it comes to baptism, and he does so through the many deceptive and erroneous teachings on baptism that are out there. And for example, the Quakers the Friends Church, the Salvation Army, those we would refer to as hyper-dispensationalists. They all deny that baptism has any place in the life of believers today. They reject it altogether. Among the cults, there are the Mormons who baptize for their dead, which obviously is unbiblical. The Church of Christ teaches that baptism is a necessary part of salvation. In other words, they believe that for a person to be saved, they must also be baptized because simply believing is not enough. You must believe and be baptized to be saved. Well, that too is an unbiblical view. And I'm not going to you know, get into an in-depth discussion as to why it's unbiblical. Uh, I've done so in the past. I believe it's available on CD. So if you're interested, you could uh, check it out. But suffice it to say, As one commentator did, perhaps the most convincing refutation of the view that baptism is necessary for salvation are those who were saved apart from baptism. We have no record of the apostles being baptized, yet Jesus pronounced them clean of their sins. You know, it's the word of God, not baptism, that cleansed them. Then there was the penitent woman in Luke 7, the paralyzed man in Matthew 9 the tax collector in Luke 18, and the thief on the cross also experienced forgiveness of sins apart from baptism. Salvation is by grace through faith. You know, it is by believing that one is saved, not by baptism. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You do not have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is an outward physical act. It is considered one of the works that cannot save. So baptism doesn't guarantee salvation. I mean, the thief on the cross went to heaven without it, and Simon the magician was headed to hell with it. And so one of the erroneous teachings about baptism is that you must be baptized to be saved. Baptism is certainly very important, and it's required of every believer. But the New Testament does not teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. Another example of deceptive, erroneous teachings on baptism is that of baptismal regeneration, which says that baptism alone is sufficient to give eternal life. In other words, it's by baptism alone that one is born again. Now this differs from what the Church of Christ teaches. They teach you must believe and be baptized to be saved, but those who teach baptismal regeneration believe that baptism alone is all that is necessary for salvation. And of course, the most extreme form of this view is found within the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches and applies this concept to infant baptism. The Roman Catholic Church literally believes and teaches that baptism alone, if properly performed in the Catholic Church, of course, is sufficient to impart new life or spiritual life. I mean, obviously, this contradicts the very clear teaching of Scripture. I mean, baptism does not save. It does not impart spiritual life. Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. 
It is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation that one is saved. And so, if you're here this morning, and you're trusting in the fact that you were baptized for your salvation, then I I, I must inform you, as, as a faithful minister of the gospel, I mean, I must inform you that your baptism will not get you into heaven any more than your good works will. Because no rite or ritual, be it baptism, communion, or circumcision, can save you. And how tragic. How utterly tragic that many people are are trusting in those very things for salvation when in fact they're not even saved. Because they have never trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he said, Hell will be full of those with communion bread still in their mouths and baptismal water dripping off their brows. Baptism does not save. But it is very important because Christ commanded it. But it's not an essential element of salvation. And then as to the practice of baptizing infants, there is nothing in the New Testament about infants being baptized. I mean, if the only way you can build a case for it is that the Bible doesn't prohibit it, that's, that's not even a case at all. And all of the households that were baptized is very clear from the context of those verses that it was those who believed that were baptized. The Bible, the New Testament knows nothing about infants being baptized. Baptism is for believers. Those who have heard the word of God, heard the gospel, understood it, and responded to it in faith and repentance. In other words, they made a conscious decision to trust Christ alone for salvation and to follow him. And quite obviously, an infant is absolutely incapable of doing that. Spurgeon, again, quoting Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, I am amazed that an unconscious babe should be made the partaker of an ordinance which, according to the plain teaching of the Scriptures, requires the conscious and complete heart trust of the recipient. Very few, if any, would argue that infants ought to receive the Lord's Supper. But there is no more scriptural warrant for bringing them to the one ordinance than there is for bringing them to the other. And that's exactly right. Infant baptism is unbiblical. Well then, that raises the question, what about the issue of baptizing children? I mean, that's an issue, right? Well, we would not baptize young children. And I say that uh, for this, this reason. A believer must be old enough to have an understanding of sin and the gospel and a proper saving response to the gospel they have, a, they have to have an understanding of what it is to be a Christian, an understanding of what water baptism is. And they must have a mature profession of faith. Again, a mature profession of faith is one made by a responsible adult or a young adult, even though they may still be living in the home, but who is old enough that they've taken responsibility for themselves. And there must be evidence of it in their life. There must be evidence of it in their life. And often, and often well-meaning parents want to, want to rush their children to make a profession of faith and to be baptized when in fact that child may not truly understand what it is to be saved or understand what baptism is all about. And other times, a child may desire to be baptized because they want to please their parents, and that's understandable. Or they may uh, you know, want to get baptized because a friend or another family member uh, is being baptized or going to be baptized. And so they, they, they would like to do so as well. Well, we have to guard against that because it's not helpful. In fact, it can even be harmful by giving uh, a child assurance when they're not truly saved. And listen, No one questions whether or not children can be saved. No one questions that. God can save at any age. And we hope all of our children come to faith in Christ at a young age and and be spared some of the ravages of sin that many of us who were saved as adults experienced. 
So no one questions whether or not a, a child can be saved. The question is whether or not a church has the ability to affirm a child's profession of faith confidently. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, baptism requires two parties to make a public statement, not just one. The person being baptized and the baptizer, the church. And the baptizer, the church, for its part, needs to be able to state with integrity. Yes. I mean, the best we can tell. This person's profession of faith is valid. And he or she should be identified with Christ and and his church as a Christian. But when children are under their parents' authority and have been designed by God to want to please their parents, when it's difficult for a church to discern whether or not a profession of faith is genuine. I mean, we want to assume that it's sincere. We do. We want to assume that it is sincere. But you see, only time will tell. And I, you know, uh, just in my experience, uh, you know, as an adult, as a Christian, as, as, as a pastor, um, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that we don't really know if our children are believers until they get out of the home and on their own. Because if they've been brought up in a godly home, and again, they're designed to want to please their parents, um, they may just be being obedient while they're, you know, under those restraints. And then when they get out of the home on their own, begin to make all of their own decisions, well then what they really are on the inside, comes out. I mean, how many people have been baptized as children and and younger people who went on to give no evidence whatsoever of having truly been converted? And what damage was done to them? What damage was done to them and to the witness of the gospel and the witness of the church because the church baptized them prematurely? I mean, the best we can tell, most churches have practiced believers' baptism throughout history, did not baptize until something closer to adulthood or young adulthood when the person was more mature and responsible for themselves. You know, they had assumed adult responsibilities. It is a relatively new practice to baptize children. One man wrote, While it is not generally known among American evangelicals today, the practice of baptizing pre-teenage children is of recent development, primarily early 20th century, and limited in geography, mainly to the United States and places where American evangelicals have exercised significant influence. In the past, Baptists were known, and this, this, this man writing was obviously a Baptist, in the past, Baptists were known for wedding to baptize until the believers were adults. Baptistic Christians around the world are still much more cautious than modern American Christians, often waiting in Europe, Africa, and Asia to baptize until children are grown and in their 20s. So, we wouldn't baptize young children. But if a young person, not a preteen, but a teenager, a young person in their late teens, who was a responsible uh, young person, if they desired to be baptized, well, with the consent and encouragement of Christian parents who, who belong to this church, and who they themselves are actively involved in this church, well, we would carefully consider those requests for baptism before a child has left the home. But, I mean, we'll examine them on a case-by-case basis with the involvement of the parents, of course. You see that the problems of nominal Christianity in our country and and the number of children who leave youth groups and abandon the faith in college has been created partly because the, the church has given so many young children the assurance of salvation sooner than they should have. In fact, that's really incorrect to say that they're abandoning the faith. They never really had the faith. You don't lose your salvation. They walk away because, as John said, they were not of us. They proved by their departure that they were never born again. And so, 
you know, there's widespread confusion and disagreement as to what baptism means and what it does and doesn't accomplish, particularly in, in relationship to the process of salvation. No, but hopefully, you know, what we're learning this morning is helping to clear up some of the confusion because it's, it's vitally important that we understand what baptism is and it's vitally important that a believer be baptized. Well, someone might say, well, if it's not necessary for salvation, why is it so important that a believer uh, be baptized? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, it's important for this reason. The Lord Jesus has left only two ordinances for the church. The Lord's table, or communion as we more commonly call it, and water baptism. And all believers have been commanded by Christ to observe both. So we're talking about something that Jesus commanded. He ordained it in a way that would make it an ongoing practice of the church. And we see this explicitly in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 30 what's known as the Great Commission. There Jesus said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here Jesus, as a part of the Great Commission, commands the church to baptize. You know, having gone out, they are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them. And so it's clear that baptism is a command and an ordinance of the Lord Jesus to be performed in making disciples until Christ returns at the end of the age. So this is to be an ongoing practice of the church. Secondly, uh, we see this in Acts 2.38, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for, or because of, or based on, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here the Holy Spirit, through Peter, commands every individual believer to be baptized. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The early church set the example for us to follow. All 3,000 who believed on the day of Pentecost were baptized and added to the church. And so what we see here is Jesus commanded the church to baptize. The Holy Spirit commands the individual believer to be baptized. And the early church has set the example for us. And so the point is simply this. The Lord Jesus commands all who have trusted in him as Lord and Savior to be baptized. It's not optional. And it's not merely a suggestion or, you know, just a good thing to do. No, it's required. It is a command of Christ himself that is binding on all believers in all places at all times until the end of the age. And so it should not be a matter of indifference to us whether a Christian is baptized or not. Because baptism is not an optional extra for followers of Jesus. Rather, it's a command. And as we said earlier, believers, out of love for the Lord Jesus and gratitude for all that he has done, are to obey his commands. I mean, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. And then again, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, all who have trusted Christ alone for salvation and give reasonable evidence of believing, in other words, they they make a mature profession of faith, they should be baptized. Unless, of course, that there is some doubt or question as to whether someone has truly believed. Because baptism, which is a symbol of beginning the Christian life, should only be given to those who have actually begun the Christian life. I mean, doesn't that make sense? You don't want to baptize someone who's never begun the Christian life. That would make a mockery of the whole thing. And so the scriptures are very clear. They command all who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation to be baptized. But as clear as the scriptures are on this issue, there, are, there, there was just a, a tremendous 
number of, of believers today who have never been baptized. In fact, one commentator said, despite the direct command of Scripture, we have today a significant number of people who call themselves Christians and actually may be Christians, but who have never been baptized. And so that raises the, immediately raises the question of, well, why? Why haven't they been baptized? I mean, why would a believer not be baptized? Well, I mean, there could be several reasons. Let me just name a few. First of all, lack of understanding. That's quite possible. A believer may not know. They may not have been taught they're, they're to be baptized. That, that's very understandable. They were just never taught about being baptized, or at least not taught properly or, or taught incorrectly. So, a lack of understanding. Another reason could be spiritual pride. They may have been a believer for a while, maybe a long time. And they're embarrassed that they have have never been baptized and they're too proud to admit it. And, And that's understandable, but it's not acceptable. But it is understandable. Thirdly, it could be a matter of indifference. As a believer, they understand they're supposed to be baptized. I mean, they're not against it. They, they believe it, but they have no real interest in it for themselves. And the baptism services are never at a convenient time for them. They're, they always have something going on, and so they just really never get around to doing it because it's just not a priority. They understand it's a command, but it's not something they're really overly concerned about obeying. They're just kind of indifferent. Fourthly, it could just be plain old defiance. You know, just a a flat-out unwillingness to obey Christ. And often, uh, the reason people are defiant is that they're involved in some sin that they don't want to give up. And since they're not going to submit to the Lord privately, they're not about to get up and do it publicly. One man wrote, the person who is unwilling to be baptized is at best a disobedient believer. And if he persists in his unwillingness, there is reason to doubt the genuineness of his faith. If he is unwilling to comply with that simple act of obedience in the presence of fellow believers, he will hardly be willing to stand for Christ before the unbelieving world. And the last reason why someone would not be baptized is they've, they've never truly been born again. And consequently, they have no real interest in the things of God. And you wouldn't expect them to. Because when someone is born again, they, they receive a new nature. I mean, the very life of God in, invades the, the soul of man. There's a radical transformation that takes place on the inside. A new nature, a new creation in Christ. That means they have new desires. They're given an appetite for the things of God. They're going to hunger for the things of God. Just as a new baby craves its mother's milk, a new believer is going to crave the Word of God, the things of God, the the people of God. And so if someone has no interest in being baptized, it it could mean they're, they're not a believer. And if that's the case, the Holy Spirit is not in them to compel them to obedience. And they may be very nice people. They may be religious people, people who attend church for social reasons or perhaps to to please their spouse. Or maybe they just like being around Christians. You know, being at church makes them feel good. But they're not going to be baptized. They're not going to be baptized making a public profession of a conversion that's never really taken place. And we certainly would not want them to profess something that isn't true in their lives. So those are just a few reasons. There's probably that many more uh, why someone would not be baptized. However, we cannot get away from the fact that Jesus commanded all who have believed to be baptized. One man wrote, The New Testament has no concept of an unbaptized Christian. When people repented and believed in Christ, they were baptized often immediately as a public profession of their faith and to identify with the body of believers. The two were inextricably linked throughout the early church. And so if you're a follower of Christ and you've not been baptized, 
I mean, you're living in direct disobedience to the Lord. I mean, it's not that one has to be baptized in order to become a Christian. But once you are a Christian, your public declaration of faith in Christ necessarily involves baptism. I mean, to neglect baptism is really to dishonor and disobey the Lord. So if you're a believer in Christ and and you have not been baptized, then out of loving obedience to your Lord and Savior, and you need to follow Christ's command and, and be baptized. And, and listen, there, there are blessings in being baptized. I mean, if you, if you haven't been baptized or realize you need to be rebaptized, I want to encourage you to do so, not only out of obedience to Christ, but also because there are blessings in obeying the Lord in baptism. I mean, first of all, it's a blessing just to know that you are, are personally obeying Christ. And secondly, it may increase your boldness to to witness for Christ. Not necessarily, but it may. It'll help solidify your commitment to follow Christ. And not only that, it, it sets a good example for other believing family members and friends who also need to be baptized. I mean, it's a, and it's a blessing and, and an encouragement to everyone in the local church you belong to as they see you, they observe you, obey Christ and, and publicly professing your faith in him and being identified with him and, and with his church. That's a blessing and an encouragement to the church. And so in closing, let me just say this. It's, it's important to recognize that baptism is not a mere human tradition. It's not something that the church invented. It's not something we Christians only happen to do and could just as well uh, not do. It's something that Christ has commanded us to do until the end of the age. And so it's important. Let me close with this illustration. You can say that baptism is like a a wedding ring. They both symbolize transactions. A wedding ring symbolizes marriage, just as baptism symbolizes salvation. Wearing a wedding ring does not make you married any more than being baptized makes you saved. I mean, to extend the parallel, if a person, especially a woman, does not wear a wedding ring, you can almost always assume that she is not married. And so it was in New Testament times. If a person was not baptized, you could probably assume that they were not a believer. So in this we must be clear. Baptism is a symbol of salvation and only a symbol. But like a wedding ring, it is such an effective symbol that it should never ever be taken for granted. So I, I hope that, that this has been helpful this morning. You know, perhaps it's answered some questions with regard to baptism. Perhaps it's, it's raised many more. Uh, if so, I'd be more than glad to try and answer any questions you may have. And I'm certainly looking forward to our baptism four weeks from today. And my prayer is that as we gather for the baptism as a church, we're going to experience a a rekindling of our love for the Lord and and all that he's done for us and making us part of his family. And so if you desire to be baptized, there's some paperwork to fill out, just a a questionnaire uh, about your salvation experience. And then there's a, a form to write out your testimony, and we give you some forms to help you do that. And then there would be a meeting on Sunday, September 18th, the Sunday before, after the service, uh, for all those who want to be baptized. And so if, if you're interested, if you, if you realize you need to be baptized, uh, then come and see me after the, the service. I have the paperwork here and would love to speak with you about that. Well, let's stand and Have a word of prayer.
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.